Let's now turn to our Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 4. The message this afternoon will be about what the church confesses here in Lord's Day 4 of the Catechism. We'll read that Lord's Day together. Question 9 asks us, but does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? And our response is no. For God so created man that he was able to do it. But man, at the instigation of the devil in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Question 10. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? And our answer is certainly not. He is terribly angry with our original sin as well as our actual sins. And therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment both now and eternally. As he has declared, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Galatians chapter 3 verse 10. Finally, question 11, but is God not also merciful? The answer is God is indeed merciful, but he is also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. May God bless the reading of the word and also of the church's confession and the proclamation of the gospel in this worship service. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, some of the worst questions in the world begin with the simple three-letter word, but. And if you think about it, a lot of questions that begin with that word are either questions of protest or they're questions of rebellion. Now, the kids here will know many questions that begin with the word but. But why do I have to do that? But how come he's allowed and I'm not allowed? But didn't you tell us we were going to do something else? So these are the kinds of questions that we hear, questions that we ask that start with the word but. Lord's Day 4 of our Heidelberg Catechism begins, uh, includes two questions that begin with that infamous word but. And the questions that are put in our mouths can be read as questions of protest. We've just learned in the previous Lord's Day, in Lord's Day 3, that man was created good and in God's image. And man, through his own fault, fell into sin. And because of this, all of us are by nature so corrupt that we are constitutionally incapable of doing any good. That means that within ourselves, we are unable to do anything that is really good. So now come the questions that start with the word but. Because these are questions that come naturally to minds and hearts that may not be completely and absolutely submissive to God. They're questions that each one of us may have struggled with at one time or another, or questions that some of you may be struggling with right now. If we are unable to do any good, if that is our nature, if that's who we are, how can God hold us up to such a high standard? Now, I didn't choose to be born. 
I certainly didn't choose to be born in sin, stained with what Answer 10 calls original sin. That sin that David speaks about in Psalm 51, in which he was conceived. So how can I be held responsible for something that I didn't even do? Our immediate answer is, it's not fair. How can God do this? And then given the answer that Lord's Day 4 gives to that question, another but comes up. But isn't God merciful? And that's the kind of question that people who claim to believe in God, but who have real, no real idea of who God is, that's the kind of question that they ask. A person might acknowledge that they've done some bad stuff in their life. That person might acknowledge that, that God would be right for punishing him for the bad things that he's done. But he's also heard something about God's mercy. And so what he does is he banks on God's mercy, thinking that God's mercy is going to overrule his justice. That God will show mercy to me despite my sins just because of the simple fact that he is merciful. But is God not also merciful? Now the first thing we need to see about these two questions is that they might display depending on the way in which they're asked, a lack of understanding of who God is and who we are in relation to Him. So our starting point is God's revelation of Himself in His Word. And let's turn together to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, the verses 6 and 7. In Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, the Lord appears to Moses. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So these are the things that the Lord chose to reveal about himself to Moses. When Moses asked him specifically to show him his glory, this is what the Lord showed, his glorious attributes. So these are the attributes that make God, the Lord, the God of the covenant, glorious. His mercy, his grace, his slowness to anger, the fact that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that he's forgiving, but not clearing the guilty, punishing sin. So the Lord, when he declares his glory, he proclaims his glory, he declares himself to be supremely and perfectly just, and at the same time, supremely and perfectly merciful. Now we have trouble, a lot of trouble, putting these two attributes together. And you can see how that works itself out throughout the history of the church. Because at some periods in history, preaching has been all about God's justice. It's all about fire and brimstone. But at other times in the church's history, the preaching has, has the pendulum has swung in the opposite direction. So God's justice is neglected, but His mercy is trumpeted from the mountaintops. God is love. 
God becomes this kind of supernatural, kindly grandfather figure whose mercy always overwhelms his justice. But we need to look at how God defines himself. How he defines himself when he shows Moses his glory by speaking these words to him. He doesn't make distinctions. He doesn't make dichotomies, divisions between the parts of himself. He says, I am merciful and I am gracious. And at the same time, I do not clear the guilty. I visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. And if verses 6 and 7 of of Exodus 34 provide us with the perfect description of the Lord, then Moses' response in verse 8 also shows us something very important. It provides us with the perfect response. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. That's Moses' response. So Moses understood at that moment that who he was exactly in relation to his God. And that led to the proper response, the response of humble worship before the Lord. The almighty God of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, the one who is so far beyond us that that we can only begin to have an inkling of the real dimensions of his perfections and of his glory. That is the God who reveals himself and who we worship. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, the verses 12 to 17. Where we read, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. When we read the book of Job, especially Job chapter 38, the message is the same. God asks Job a number of questions which serve to humble Job. And one of those questions is, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And then he follows up with a number of other questions and question piles on top of question on top of question. And all of these questions serve to remind us that we are not nearly anywhere near as great as we sometimes like to imagine that we are. And so after four lengthy chapters that go along in this way, in Job 38 to 41, they, these, these pictures only serve to enlarge our vision of God, reinforcing our picture of who we are in relation to Him. And Job answers with these words in Job chapter 42, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now we read from Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans. And in Romans chapter 9, verses 19 and 20, Paul shows how he responded to these types of questions. And his response is the ultimate answer. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But here's the response. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? And of course, the expected answer is absolutely not. When a parent tells a child to do something, the only correct way for the child to respond is in submission and obedience. If a faithful, godly father tells his child to do something, if he's living up to his Christian calling and being a father like God the Heavenly Father, then the child can be sure that his or her father has a good reason for doing what he's doing and for wanting the child to do what he wants. And so when a father tells his son to do something and the child asks why, the only answer the father really needs to give is because I said so. That infamous answer. Because that should be enough. So the father says to the child, don't run on the road. The child says, why? And the father says, because I said so. And that's enough. But at the same time, we know that we do explain ourselves and we do explain our actions. Our commands, our orders are not arbitrary. And we don't want to be seen as being arbitrary, as doing things according to the the dictionary definition of arbitrary based on random choice or personal whim rather than any reason or system. As parents, we're not arbitrary, neither is God. We want our rules to make sense and the consequences for disregarding these rules to make sense as well. And we also want the same thing from our justice system, don't we? As the saying goes, the punishment must fit the crime. And so despite the fact that we are called to obey our parents where their rules don't conflict with the law of God, and the fact that we are required to obey the governing authorities with that same caveat, as long as their decrees don't conflict with the law of God, then we rightly get annoyed when the rules we are called to obey seem to be arbitrary. They seem to not make any sense. They seem to be based on whims. And so while that little imaginary conversation between father and son should be enough to get the child to listen, that that father's answer is not really going to be satisfactory. Don't run on the road, the father says. Why, the son says. The father answers, because if you do, chances are pretty good that you're going to be maimed or killed by a passing car. So don't run on the road is not an arbitrary rule. It has the purpose of protecting the life and the health of that child. And so our thinking begins with a certain understanding of who God is. He is not arbitrary in his decisions. 
He is perfectly wise. And so if we do not understand why it is that he does certain things, the first thing we need to do is submit to him and submit to his will. Now, I may not understand it, but I am not the final arbiter of right and wrong. He is. I'm not the creator. He is. And beginning with that understanding, we can seek out reasons. And this is wisdom. So why does God hold us up to such a high standard? He holds us up to such a high standard because he created us in such a way that we were able to obey him. But man, deliberately disobeying God, robbed himself and his children of these good gifts. Now look at, look at it this way. A teacher has two students. The teacher gives both of the students an assignment. Neither one of the, neither one of the students completes the assignment. Now the one student has a mental disability. So he does his best, but he doesn't complete the work. He tries, but he can't do it. He works hard. He puts in every ounce of his effort. He obeys the teacher. He wants to please her. That's the first student. Doesn't complete the task. The second is, is a student of above average intelligence. And that student's been given all the tools that he needs to complete the work that was assigned to him. But after he receives the assignment, he throws the assignment in the garbage, he tosses out his pens and his papers, and he deliberately leaves all his books at school. Now we like to think that we're more like the first student than like the second one. We like to think that we're like that student who was mentally disabled and wasn't able to do it, who tries his best but just can't. When in fact, we are like that second student. We have everything that we need to do the work. We had everything that we needed to do the work that was required. But then like that student deliberately and maliciously did everything he could do not in order to not do the work, we did the same thing. And so we deserve to be held accountable. And God is terribly displeased, we confess, with our original as well as our actual sins. And so, as we said, we are guilty from conception, and day by day by day after day, we only add to our debt. So we need to think covenantally and not individualistically. God relates to people in terms of covenant relationships. And that's how he related to Adam. Adam was the covenantal representative of all humanity. In Adam all die, Romans chapter 5. Because Adam is our natural representative. So apart from a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we are all in union with Adam. We are united to him. We are stained with that original sin. And God is terribly displeased with that. And so we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. We deserve punishment in this life, and we deserve punishment forever, hereafter. And that's because God is infinitely holy. He's infinite in all of his perfections. And that means that just one of what we might even consider to be a minor indiscretion, 
Nothing very serious. Just one small sin is enough to make us as guilty as the worst mass murderer or serial rapist. It's impossible, brothers and sisters, it is impossible for us to think too highly of God. With our limited capacity as as creatures and as fallen creatures, we cannot think highly enough about Him, in fact. And one of the best things that we can do to grow in our Christian walk is to meditate on the attributes of God, on who He is, on His greatness. And Psalm 8 is one example of what happens when God's people do just that, meditating on God's attributes. When God considers the heavens the work of God's fingers, when David considers the heavens the work of God's fingers, the moon and the stars which God put in place, this fact alone is enough to lead him to ask this question, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? There's a very good word picture, and I've used this with catechism students in the past. That is about the universe. The sun is 149,600,000 kilometers away from us. 149,600,000, give or take a kilometer or two. Now, if you were to drive 100 kilometers per hour, 24 hours per day, for about 170 years, on a hypothetical highway leading to the sun with no stops, you will get there. That's how far away it is. Now, as for the size of our sun, you could fit 1,300,000 Earths, planet Earths, in the sun. And now think about this. That's the sun in our solar system. Every star in the heavens is a sun. And there are billions of stars in the universe. And then consider for a moment that the Earth is, a number of, uh, uh, is one of a number of small planets circling one of billions of suns. Now add that to the fact that to us, the Earth seems huge. And, and I'm sure all of us are only going to see a fraction of it in our lifetimes. We are like a speck of dust on a speck of dust in a vast universe. And God created it all, and He's in charge of it all. Every atom of every molecule in this universe, with its billions and billions of suns, is under His control and under His supervision. He knows it intimately. Nothing escapes His knowledge. He governs the universe in a physical way, perfectly, and He governs it in perfect wisdom, so that everything works together. And the thing is, what he's done in the physical universe, he also does in the moral universe, in the moral sphere of life. He set everything up perfectly so that it works together and so that we can follow his lead. So how highly should we think of God in light of this? More highly than we often do. And that leads us to consider the final question and answer of this Lord's Day. Can we simply bank on the mercy of God? Can we simply play God's mercy off against His justice? And the answer to that question is no. God is perfect. 
His justice is perfect, and that justice requires that sin committed against His most high and holy majesty be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. And so when people have some idea of God, when they prefer to think of Him as being gracious and merciful rather than righteous, uh, righteous and filled with wrath against sin, and when they have the temerity, when they, have, when, they, when they dare to question Him and the way that He's chosen to do things, you can see just how ludicrous it really is. When Moses sang a song after God delivered the people of Israel from Pharaoh by dividing the Red Sea, he asked this question. He said, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And it's important here to see what Moses says. Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, and doing wonders. He puts all of those things together. He parallels God's creative power, God's providential power, and His perfect holiness. Because we do have trouble conceiving in our minds what perfect holiness actually is. And how that perfect holiness is something to adore. But we seem to have less problem thinking of God's majesty in terms of His creative power. His perfect governance of this seemingly infinite universe. We are dealing with a God of infinite holiness and infinite majesty. Now, doesn't it make sense that one single sin committed against an infinite being is deserving of infinite punishment? And so when God forgives sins, that, that forgiveness must be in accord with that infinite holiness. So God simply cannot be just forgiving as if that's all there were to it. Because His justice and His mercy go hand in hand. Sin must be punished. Punishment must be made. Now, of course, that brings us to the next Lord's Day. And I could just stop here and say, be con to be continued uh, and leave you in suspense. But that isn't what we'll do. God's justice and God's mercy, giving you a preview of what you'll probably hear next week, met on the cross of Jesus Christ. God did not give up any of his attributes in order to forgive. His justice and his mercy came together. And so he didn't, doesn't forgive just because. He poured out his holy and his righteous wrath on his son on the cross. And that's the only way that salvation could have been possible. So God's justice had to be satisfied in order for his mercy to be shown. And so if we appear before the highest court, the court of judgment of the Lord on judgment day, if we show up there on our own accord in ourselves, God must pour his wrath out upon us because to, to not do so would mean that he is not the God that he says that he is. But if we appear before the judgment seat of Christ with Christ as our representative, we will be saved because Christ faced the wrath of God against our sin 
so that we could be saved. Now that's, brothers and sisters, the gospel message. As we hear about in this first part of the catechism, our sin and our misery, and as we think about how we are to be delivered from that sin and that misery, take time to think about God, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds and doing wonders, as Moses said. And think about yourself as a speck of dust on a speck of dust. And give thanks for what he has done for you in Jesus Christ. Because there's nothing else in this world that could possibly compare. Amen.